Well, we turn now to our sermon where we consider the passage that Patricia read for us. And um, as always, but perhaps for any of you who are new, I'll just draw your attention to um, a uh, several page um, handout that has a translation to which I'll be referring. And then there's a single page handout, which is an outline of what I hope to say and draw from the passage, God willing. And as we do so, let me begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are here in our midst. Thank you that your spirit spoke through scripture authoritatively and definitively in the beginning, and that your spirit still speaks to your people when it is proclaimed. So I ask that you might use me to be a channel through which you speak to us all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I paid a long overdue visit to my family doctor. He's just down the street, about five doors down. Very efficient guy. You could bring your list and he goes through the whole thing. And as I was going through my list, I thought, he's speaking kind of quietly. And then I thought, you know, a lot of people are speaking pretty quietly these days. Maybe I should ask him about my hearing. My wife tells me that I have selective hearing at the best of times, but that it's getting no better with age. So I asked for a cross-referral to a hearing doctor. It could happen to you, maybe it already has. And you'll wear one of those things which I called as a kid, a hearing egg. You know, it looked kind of like a little egg that people put in their ears, but it's actually, of course, a hearing aid. Well, why do I bring that up? Well, after reading through uh, Matthew with me, I think you will probably agree that Jesus keeps talking about the same thing, about the need for servant leadership. And time and time again, it is as though we were not listening. So I have titled today's sermon tentatively, Are We Listening Yet? And I suspect that the answer is clearly no. But there's hope for us because God is gracious and Jesus again draws attention to what he wants us to hear. And of course, in a biblical understanding, hearing isn't just sort of listening and saying, yeah, I got you. But hearing and listening in biblical understanding has legs. We are to uh, walk the talk, as it were. We are to follow Jesus. So our passage in uh, Matthew chapter 20 begins with the third passion prediction. But before we come to 20, I simply want to back up and remind us of where we are in our chapter because I think it's a helpful review and if you turn to page four of your handout you'll see that for the past several weeks we have been looking at chapters 18 to 20 which one person has aptly called the little sermon on the mount and my favorite Matthew commentator Frederick Dale Bruner who is both a good student of the Bible but also an effective Bible teacher he has a special way of coining things. And he says, first we learn how Christians live in their churches, chapter 18. Then we learn how they live in their homes, chapter 19. And finally, how they live in their workplace, chapter 20. So we have life in the church, life at home, and life in the workplace. And if you look at his introduction, his uh, outline, uh, we'll be reminded of some of the things that we learned about congregational life. Um, it involves um, addressing the question of personal greatness. 
and switching gears and becoming a servant, of being careful not to be a stumbling block for anyone's faith, becoming little rather than great. Love seeks out others like uh, a good shepherd who will go and look for that one sheep until it's found. Love is willing to confront others. If you have an interpersonal conflict, there's a set of procedures in chapter 18, verses 15 to 20 for reconciling. And then it talks about the importance of forgiving others in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I think one of the things that gets Jesus more than anything is summarized in that passage, which we looked at a few weeks ago, being the beneficiary of God's grace, but then not turning around and sharing it. Receiving forgiveness on a grand level, you remember this is a person who owed billions, I mean, it was right over the chart, and then he turned around and he wasn't forgiving to somebody who owed him a few dollars. And God is gracious, and he has bestowed his grace upon us and wants us, in turn, to be gracious and forgiving to others. Then in chapter 19, we looked at home life, where we dealt with, uh, Jesus dealt with uh, divorce, which was all too easy in Jesus' day. A Jewish man could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason, according to one understanding of the Jewish law, including too much salt in the pasta. Um, and so Jesus reinforces the sanctity and the permanency of marriage, while at the same time hallowing the single life and talking again about children. And then a few weeks ago, we talked about money. I think there was even a week here at Christ the King when we were talking about sex at 2.30 and money at 4.30. I mean, you know, that's a pretty powerful combination in the story of the rich young ruler. And um, we are to be um, generous and we are to manage our finances with a loose hand. All that we have belongs to God. And if we cling to it, it owns us rather than we owning it. And then in chapter 20, we began last week with what Bruner calls spiritual pride, the parable of the vineyard workers, where the guys who arrived at the last minute got the same pay as those who'd been working all day. And they were cheesed off. And God says, I paid you what, you, I paid you what we agreed to. What's your problem? What have you got against me being generous? And we're going to return to that again a little bit by surprise as we come to our passage today. And then our passage today is uh, what Bruner calls God's word of spiritual direction, the third passion prediction, and then God's word to spiritual ambition, the request of the Zebedees. So we come now to the third passion prediction, which is on page one of your outline, and I want to read it again. Uh, Jesus had to say it three times, so allow it to be read twice, at least in this service. While Jesus was ascending, page one of your outline, toward Jerusalem, he took aside the twelve, and privately and on the road, he said to them, Look, we are ascending to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be given over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will give him to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised again. The title that I've assigned to this paragraph is, Apparently, We're Not Listening. This is, after all, the third prediction of Jesus' uh, passion. And in fact, if you look at the history of those predictions, beginning all the way back in 1621, each time Jesus makes this prediction, somebody 
tries to ignore it. Do you remember? The classic was Peter when Peter took Jesus aside and said, Lord, you got this all wrong. You're, we've just announced that you're the Messiah. That means that you're going to go to Jerusalem and knock a few heads, not get your own head knocked in. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the purposes of, uh, of God, but you have the purposes of humans. If you look at page five, under, um, at the, towards the bottom, there's a bit of a summary here um, about the, each of these uh, different um, predictions. Three times, Jesus takes his disciples into the valley of his suffering messiahship. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22 to 23, and here in 20, 17 to 90. And each time, right afterwards, in all three predictions, the disciples take Jesus and themselves back up on a mountain of glory, hoping that messiahship means their victory, not their defeat. Greatness, not obscurity, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, and power, not servitude. And so three more times, Jesus must take his disciples back down the valley and teach them afresh that the way up is down. It was to be a glory moment when the Messiah came, but this Messiah, the true Messiah, had a different understanding of what it meant. It was a glory moment, but glory was preceded by the crucifixion of Jesus because he took upon himself the penalty for our sins. And he went and he died a selfless death to give us freedom. So already at the beginning of our passage, it talks about Jesus ascending towards Jerusalem. And normally when you ascended towards Jerusalem, you were a pilgrim on a festival. Several times a year in the Old Testament, pilgrims would get together, you'd get family, and it was a little bit like uh, sort of a, a religious version of going, to, uh, of going to the X or something like that. People would, people would come to town, they would camp out, they would hang around, and they would have a great time. But Jesus ascending towards Jerusalem this time, he takes aside the 12 and he says to them, guys, remember, we are ascending towards Jerusalem. Not only is Jesus ascending towards Jerusalem, but he ties us into it. Our destiny is to be that of Jesus himself. And so what happens to Jesus, apart from his atoning death, which was his uniquely to do, is also the fate of those who would follow him. Christians are people who enact the path of the way down being the way up. And so Jesus here, in effect, sets an example for us. You know, those of us who have been Christians for a long time read these passion predictions and we sort of say, oh yes, this is where Jesus changes the paradigm and talks about suffering. But in this third passion prediction, Jesus, more than any of the other passion predictions, is extremely specific. The Son of Man will be given over, he knows to whom, the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death, they'll give him to the Gentiles, they'll mock him, flog him, and crucify him, and on the third day, he will be raised. I know the Bible. What's the big deal? So tell me what's happening in two weeks from now in your life. What's going to happen a week from Tuesday? You might have an idea that you're going to work. You might be able to sort of plan it generally. But Jesus foresees the future. And this points to his character. 
this is not some kind of a magician. This is not some kind of a fortune teller, but this is someone who knows the future, and he has foreknowledge of it. And that points, my friends, to his deity. Jesus is unique in this regard. So it points to his divinity, but how much more also does it point to his suffering? I was imagining earlier this week, what, it be, what would it be like if I knew that I was going to die in a fire this June, you know? Um, and you, 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 you knew it was going to happen, and, and you, you just, it was, a, it was a done deal. The sheer anticipation of that would add all that much more to the agony. So Jesus' agony on the cross wasn't simply what he suffered, as great as that was, but it was that he knew it was coming. He was fully aware and he had the power to stop it at any moment. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he willingly went to the cross for you and for me to pay the penalty for our sins. A great debt was owed to God, and it's owed by each one of us every time we do something wrong. We offend a perfect God. And as uh, the great atonement scholar Anselm pointed out, the offense that we owe is against God, and therefore what we owe is, is, is infinitely enormous. In the ancient world, if you um, robbed from a king or you committed an offense against a, a powerful person, the offense was greater than if you committed an offense against uh, an ordinary person. So we have uh, an infinite sized debt that is owed to God, but that must be paid by a human being. And so God becomes a human being in order to pay that debt for us. And he pays a debt as a human, which humans owed, and he pays it in the measure that God deserves because he's God. It says later in our paragraph, when we come to the end of the second um, section in verse 28, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, that is, to give his life a ransom for many. When he died on the cross, he bought you back. He won you back. He paid a penalty so that you could be the possession of God and you could be back in fellowship with him. And he did it freely. He did it knowingly. He did it intentionally. My friends, that's why we're in church. We are a people who have been set free and he's given us joy in our hearts. And we don't have to worry about the wrong things that we've done. So long as we turn and say, God, I blew it again. There's the bestowment of forgiveness because of the death of Jesus on the cross. It's a wonderful story. It's the story of the gospel. And it's one that I hope that you will know and embrace. The way to respond to it is simply to accept it as a gift. Jesus died for your sins. He paid the penalty. And it's there as a gift. And all one has to do to receive a gift is just to allow it to fall in your lap, not to push it away. Unwrap the paper by faith, open it up, and eternal life is yours because of what Jesus did on the cross when he paid a ransom for us. Well, surely now that the third time has gone by, um, we get it, right? So what happens in the next paragraph, and of course I'm saying this with tongue in cheek, verse 20 Another of the sons of Zebedee approached him with her sons, prostrating and asking something from him. Jesus said to her, what do you want? She says to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. 
here again, are humans not listening to what Jesus is saying? And instead, they're posturing, they're jockeying for position. Reminds me a little bit of something that happened to my brother a few years ago. He was the elder in a Baptist church, and he was kind of troubleshooting for the pastor. He was uh, doing conflict resolution. He was trying to get people's heads together. And it was a miserable week. He'd spent evenings in people's homes where they were arguing about this and about that. And as my brother went to church that Sunday, he just felt totally exhausted. And after church, a woman came up to him and said, you're one of the elders here, right? And my, my brother said, yes. And he said, uh, is not, she said, is now a good time to tell you a problem? And my brother actually said, um, actually, no, it's not. But she didn't hesitate for a moment. She just barreled right on with the problem. He, she didn't understand that my brother was sending out a signal that now was not a good time. In verse 20, then, then after Jesus has talked about his own demise, his own downfall, the mother of two disciples comes and says, can my two boys have a, have a place, one at your right and one at your left in the kingdom? I mean, I know it's just going to be really special and I'm hoping that it'll be great. What can you say? Well, we can say a few things. One is that it was apparently typical in the ancient world, and I think it might well be in the modern world as well. If you were a little nervous about asking somebody something, your mother can get away with those questions that the kids can't. You know, if it has to do with maybe a loan from the father or something, you're afraid to ask. So, mom, could you go and talk to dad about that? So the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes and she approaches him. Now we've seen in Matthew before that Matthew is filled with all kinds of Old Testament allusions. And because the mother isn't mentioned in Mark, but is clearly there, people wonder why Matthew had the mother of the sons of Zebedee uh, involved in the picture, uh, because Mark doesn't, uh, doesn't mention her. And indeed, Jesus will direct his answer to the, uh, to the sons of Zebedee as though um, they're re it's really coming from them. But I think it recalls the story of Bathsheba in the Old Testament. When she comes to King David, and she says to King David, you remember, won't you, that my son, Solomon, you promised that he would sit on the throne, didn't you? In this case, Bathsheba comes and prostrates herself before the son of David, before David himself, asking that her son, Solomon, would be placed on the throne. So there's, I think, a veiled messianic illusion here in that the mother, like Bathsheba, recognizes that Jesus is the son of David and wants a similar favor of her sons. Declare that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right and one at your left. Bad timing, haven't got the picture. Lady, the way up is down. James and John, the way up is down. But responding for now in verse 22, Jesus takes the woman quite seriously. She says, none of you know, and he's using the plural here in you, none of you know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup which I'm about to drink? I can imagine that maybe the mother and the, and the sons have rehearsed this. You know, if Jesus kind of puts us through a few questions, you know, just kind of an interview to see whether you deserve to be at the right hand or the left hand of the father. I, I want you to say yes, put your best foot forward. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are able. 
And then Jesus shows himself as the one who knows everything because he says to them, you will in fact imbibe my cup. He knows that James will be martyred and that John will be exiled. So the cup of wrath that I am about to drink is in your destiny as well, gentlemen. So you're right that you will drink my cup, but you don't have any idea what you're talking about. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant, but to those to whom it has been allotted by my father. Well, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit has a way of communicating a message at a, at a, at a deeper level. And the irony, I think, is perfectly clear. But to the careful reader of Matthew's gospel, the irony is very poignant in the point of the woman's question. Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. It's a request for glory. But later on in Matthew, when he's describing the crucifixion, Matthew says exactly the same thing except without the pronouns. One at his left, or sorry, one at his right and one at his left. And those were the two people who were crucified on either side of Jesus. So here they mean the one on the right and the one on the left for glory. But the Holy Spirit and the Matthew together are kind of whispering back at us. Yes, but think of the one on the right and the one on the left. That is the destiny that lies ahead for them. And it lies ahead for one of them anyway, because one of them confessed Christ and the other didn't. But the point is that the position the path ahead for us as the followers of Jesus is the narrow path. It's the path of suffering. It's the path of humility. It's the path of loneliness. Jesus did it. Are we too good? Are we too special? If his was the path of humility and suffering, so shall it be for us. Jesus then um, and I'm, I'm skipping over um, a, a, um, one item on the lesson of Jesus' human character. You can read about it in, in the notes. It has to do with the humanity of Jesus and the interesting question about how it was that Jesus didn't, said he, 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 it wasn't his to know who would sit at the right and the left. But we come now again to uh, verses 24 and 28. When the ten heard, that is, the request of the mother and the two sons, they were angry with the two brothers. I don't think they were angry because they were asking the wrong questions. They were angry because two of them had tried to beat, beat them to the punch with the help of their mother. They too were concerned with glory. They were wanting the high chairs and the positions of importance. But Jesus, with a measure of understanding and compassion, he called them together and he said, you know that the Gentile leaders exercise power over others and their big shots exercise authority over others. So he gives, in effect, two statements on the Gentile way about the, uh, the um, exercising of authority and the governing over others. And then he says, in no way shall it be thus among you. But he turns things on their head and he gives them two examples. And this is what Jesus has been saying for several chapters now. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Let me say it again. Whoever would wish to be first among you shall be your slave. Here Jesus now explicitly brings together greatness and firstness, littleness and lastness. 
And it's clear that these are two different metaphors that Jesus has been using for the path of humility, for the path of modesty, for the path of servanthood. And then he puts himself as the example in verse 28, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That is, to give his soul a ransom for many. It seems as though the strategy of the mother and the brothers was if Jesus isn't listening and he's talking nonsense about taking the path downward, let's just shout a little louder about the path upward. I think one of the other problems, and it's one that uh, we face, is that um, in the Gentile world, the path of servanthood doesn't work very well, does it? One writer has said, because culture so ceaselessly directs us in exactly the opposite direction, up, believers must pray almost daily for the wisdom and courage to go counterculturally down. I was uh, uh, around 20 years old, and I was hoping to get a scholarship at university. And um, I was invited to a scholarship interview where you met some people who were on the board of the scholarship committee and they were to judge that night who was going to get the scholarship and so um, everybody was nicely dressed as was i we went to this home of this um, rich lady um, in calgary and um, i was um, a well-meaning christian who was a little bit naive and the way that i thought to impress them all would be instead of talking up and schmoozing to the people I would go to the hors d'oeuvre plate and I would hand out, you know, shrimp and hors d'oeuvres. So I went around and said, would anybody like some? Yes, here you have some, here you have some. And I thought, you know, it's the servant's path. This is the way that Jesus taught. I acted like the waiter. Jesus would be proud, but you know what? They thought I was the waiter. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get close to getting the scholarship. So the way of the world and the way of Jesus are sometimes at odds. And this isn't going to cut it in the marketplace, folks. And Jesus, I don't think, is putting down the marketplace. He's saying there's just kind of two ways to operate. In the Gentile world, this is how they do it. You remember the centurion. I know what you're, I know what you're up to, Jesus. I've got soldiers under me, and I say, march to it, and they march to it. Jesus recognizes that. We're told in Scripture that we ought to obey our government authorities. But the way of the people of Jesus is the opposite. And it works in the kingdom. Sometimes it even works in the Gentile world. I remember one time a professor being impressed by a Christian at exam time. It was a very stressful exam. And the students were super uptight about it. I was one of the students. And everybody was just kind of, it, they, they had heard that the exam was long and they needed to get at it right away. So when the professor handed out the, uh, the exam papers to the students who were sitting in a circle, he handed out uh, an exam paper to those on one side and to those on the other. The guy over here was not a Christian. He took the paper and he immediately put it down and started writing. The guy over here was a Christian and when he got the paper, he passed it and it went all the way around to point beside the other guy. And he just kept passing it. And other people got the idea too. Oh, pass it on to the next. I think that was probably a testimony to the professor. He thought, hmm, something different about that guy. He's uptight about the exam, but he has this sense to let the other person have the exam paper and to pass it around. I mean, after all, this kingdom ethic of Jesus didn't fall flat. It actually captured the Roman world and has influenced Western culture ever since. 
So the way of Jesus isn't the immediate way of the Gentiles, but every once in a while the Gentiles take note. And God in his mercy changes the lives and the minds of those Gentiles. That's the path. That's the way. It can bring good results. Let me just say something for a moment about Christian ambition. Uh, we're at the 25-minute mark. I'm going to be done uh, in the next five minutes. One of the things I noticed this week when I was going through the, the commentaries was people would title the second paragraph, False Ambition. Uh, wrong-headed ambition. And then about one commentator in five or six said, we don't know that there is such a thing as good ambition. So here's the question. Even if you're good and godly, should you be seeking spiritual rewards? I mean, you can be as zealous for the way down as the Gentiles are for the way up. And in the end, I concluded tentatively that yes, in a way, it's okay to be ambitious, if by ambitious you mean being the servant of others, and you mean walking in humility and putting others before yourself. But as soon as you define ambition in Jesus' way, it no longer really means ambition, right? So we can be spiritually self-interested. Well, I'm going to serve everybody and I'm going to be Joe Humble so that when I get to heaven, I'm going to just be rolling in spiritual rewards, right? That's not the way it cuts it. Because that element of self-interest that comes with that is the opposite of what Jesus says about how you're to do it. You're to think of the other person. So I do think that selfish, godly ambition is a bit counterintuitive. And the way that I, the best way that I could put on it is that it's okay to know that if you follow Jesus on the path of humility and service to others, that you will be rewarded. But you don't do it in order to get rewarded, because if you do it in order to get rewarded, you're, you're just sort of a Christian version of the same selfish people that are acting out of self-interest. So it's okay, but it ought not to be the goal. It can come as kind of the rewards or the dividends. But um, there's a good question about whether Christians should be ambitious if ambitious has anything to do with self-gain. It's just Jesus defines things totally the other way around. There's more about it in the notes. Finally, we come to the case of the, the two blind men. This concludes the major segment of chapters 18 to 20, and I think it actually provides the answer to us. What to do if we're not listening the answer comes, don't shout louder, don't correct Jesus, uh, don't sort of go half measure, but be reminded of what these two blind men did and how Jesus responded to them. After all of the posturing of the disciples, they're on their way uh, to, to Jerusalem through Jericho, and there's a loud, large crowd following Jesus, following the disciples, and on the side off somewhere are two blind guys sitting alongside the road. They've heard that Jesus is passing by, and so they start to call out, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. And here's the response that's the same as the response that the disciples gave to the children. But the crowd rebuked them to shut them up. But all the more they called out saying, pity us, Lord, son of David. 
Pity us, Lord, son of David. Nobody's listening. These guys are, these guys are just, you know, they, they have no status. They, 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 have, they have no stature in society. They're just a couple of annoying people on the sidelines. When Jesus heard them, he obviously sought them out and he said, what would you like me to do for you? Not presumptuous. They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And Jesus, being compassionate, touched their eyes. And straightway they saw again. And they followed him. All through Matthew, the standard has been sky high, and we've been asking ourselves again and again, how can we ever attain to the standard? Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He raises the bar. It comes through these moments of grace that are interjected through the passage, where again and again you see somebody who's exercising humility and who's simply saying, help me, son of David. I'm, I'm a basket case. I can't see here nor there nor anywhere. Jesus hears that voice and he seeks them out and he says, you're my guy. I found one of the little ones that I love to elevate. I found one of the last people who I'm going to make first. What to do if we're not listening? Well, we don't listen very well. We ought to. We can listen a whole lot better. We, ought, we can and should put legs to what we hear. But if nothing else, be that blind person who has the nerve to keep calling out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Their eyes were opened and they followed him. And that, my friends, is the best hope for us as well. Amen.